Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey everybody, Ready Rich here with a quick reminder that we didn't produce any new shows this week and we're all out of banks. So please enjoy this original visit with Randy all the way back from November 2012. Welcome to Penn Sunday School, starring Penn Gillette. My name is Michael Goodell, and this week we have Randall James Hamilton Zwingy. You might know him a little bit better as James Randy, or the Amazing Randy, or as he likes to be called, Simply Amazing. And now, here he is, our host, preaching the love, Mr. Penn Gillette. Preaching love. This is uh, this is uh, Penn Gillette, and uh, the introduction to give to Randy. I mean, I've said it many times before. Uh, outside of my family, outside of my mom, my dad, and my sister, uh, no one is more important in my life than Randy. You, uh, I tell people uh, when, especially when they don't like me, that it's all your fault that you uh, you <laughs> created me. Uh, you know, I was uh, uh, Randy came along when I had lost all sorts of respect for um for science and all sorts of interest in magic because the uh, Kreskin incident yeah the Kreskin incident which <laughs> i've talked about many times and randy is the one who taught me uh the most important lesson of my life which is that uh you could be interested in lying and deception as an entertainment and still be honest and moral well i gotta tell you pen i um I don't know that I've ever heard this specific opinion uh, on my evaluation in, in the scheme of things and uh, in the family order. <laughs> I'm exceedingly flattered by that. <laughs> no, I, I had no idea that. Uh, oh, it was it was an incredible thing because I had because of this uh, incident with Kreskin uh, of just seeing him on TV and buying the game and so on. I, I dropped out of all science. I had thought that scientists were liars. And the, the, you know, I, I at twelve years old, thirteen years old, I wasn't able to separate it out. And then also, I was playing around with card tricks and magic, and had no interest in magic when I first met Teller. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was constant arguments all the time because I had no interest whatsoever in deceiving people. I had gone strictly over to the juggling side, and uh, and it was seeing you lecture when we, you know, we still don't have a record of it, but I guess I was eighteen or nineteen. And you made the point so clearly that when you put a proscenium around it and tell people we're lying about it, uh, it's completely okay. Was that at the Franklin Institute, do you think? I don't think so. I think it was a college in New Jersey. Might have been. Yeah. I don't recall. That was. But I tell the story all the time, and it was the, the first time that someone I considered to be a, a professional in show business let me into the uh, inner circle. We were backstage with you. And 
while I tell this story about how wonderful you are, I think at the exact same time I will piss you off by giving away <laughs> one of the tricks. So as usually, as usual in our relationship, at the same time I do something wonderful for you, I also take it back instantly. Kick you in the yeah. pants. At the but same you time. were um, here. We go. You were doing a uh, <laughs> wonderful trick where you you had the. Uh, the one of the higher ups at the college draw a picture and put it in an envelope and seal it up. And then later on during the show, when it wasn't out of his possession, you were going to reveal what was on the envelope or something like that. And we were backstage with you when you were with this guy and you had the envelope in your hand that you, of course, had never touched <laughs> in your hand. And you turned to me out of the blue and said, did you know that Houdini had dyslexia? And I said, no, I didn't. <laughs> and you said, yes, he would switch things from one side to the other. And on the word switch, you did the switch that you had to do for your trick. Actually said the word switch while you did the switch and while your, um, your audience member didn't notice. And I felt so inside. It was the first time a person had ever... Uh, made me feel inside a group instead of outside it. Good old, will you go outside with the shovel and start digging the grave? <laughs> not, for, not for him, for me. I'll jump in voluntarily. <laughs> that was it. That was all you needed. That was the moment you were waiting for. <laughs> yes. How, how exciting. So, Randy, uh, you're, you're 84 this year, right? Yeah, well, I will be. Let's, let's not rush it. <laughs> well, so. got a, a few weeks to go. Uh, and, uh, uh, I, uh, so much of the temptation, because you have so, such great stories, is to talk about other stuff, you know, talk about the Carson times and the, and, uh, and, uh, all, uh, all the Wonderama and all the, uh, all yeah. the alpha, alpha kids and all that stuff. But what, uh, what on the front line of skepticism right now in the 21st century, what's troubling you and blowing your mind the most? Well, What's always bothered me more than anything else is the so-called medical cures that they have out there, because that actually physically takes people's health and their lives in many cases. Uh, such things as homeopathy, hmm. for example, which is a total farce. The correct expression for that is bullshit. You may have used it yourself <laughs> from time to time. It simply is a fraud and a fake. And I cannot believe that the people at the top of that industry continue to believe that it does work. Now, I can't say that they they know it doesn't work, but I can't believe that they do because they must have an IQ of a 10 or 20 at least. <laughs> and that, that would enable them to know that it doesn't work when you dilute it to the point where there's no more of the medicine present. But let's not get into a technical thing here. The, the whole health thing really bothers me a great deal. And uh, when I see these operators out there that are selling all the fake devices and uh, cures and nostrums and chanting and whatnot, and I know that so many, literally billions of people depend on these folks to give them the right advice and the right movements to make, I, I find that not only reprehensible, I find it frightening because I've had friends of mine go down that path and suffer greatly because of it. Well, you know, it doesn't even seem intelligence help you. I mean, Steve Jobs is a fine example, right? Exactly. Perfect. There's a, a very intelligent man. You have to, yeah, have to give him that. <laughs> and a great promoter and such. And look at the, the huge success he was. 
in so many ways. But when it came down to recovering from the, the cancer that he got, when he first knew about it, it could have been beaten. Now, do you, now I have read conflicting stuff about the Steve Jobs uh, issue. Do you know the real story of what, uh, what, his, what could have been done for his mental condition and what wasn't? I wish I did know the true story because there are so many versions of it out there. But apparently, now, I've talked to my, my own oncologist, uh, Dr. Maney, in, uh, in uh, Florida, and uh, I mentioned that to her, and she said, well, the opinion among uh, oncologists is that, yes, if he had gotten it at that stage, it was quite possible he'd have at least a 50% and maybe a 60% chance of surviving it. But he he went for the woo-woo stuff instead. He He thought he was so smart that he couldn't be fooled in this respect. And that's a big mistake when you think you're that smart. Well, you know, it, it, it's, not, it's not even a question of intelligence. It's a question, no, no. you know, we hear this all the time, uh, and magic teaches you this. You know, we have people come back after our show and go, you know, I have a, uh, I have a physics degree, and I'm a very smart man, and I couldn't figure out how you did those magic tricks. And there's nothing kind of more insulting than that. Exactly. While you were studying physics, we were learning other shit. <laughs> you know, some guys were learning to fix cars, some guys are learning physics, and we were learning to fool you. Well, let me, let me tell you a bit of an anecdote on that. I was, um, that was Boston. Yeah, I was in Boston uh, on some adventure or other, I don't know. They're probably lecturing there. And uh, I suddenly got a special delivery letter it was from David Copperfield's office. And I looked around me and I said, is Copperfield coming to town? Said, yeah, he's here right now. And I said, oh, I didn't even know. Well, apparently David or his management found out that I was in Boston at the time and sent me two passes uh, right out of a clear blue sky, though he had done that sort of thing before. And so I turned to someone who I will not name. I'll name him for you afterwards if your lips are sealed. <laughs> but I think you would know his name right away. A very prominent physicist uh, with MIT, as a matter of fact. Oh, him. His initials are <laughs> fuzzy in my mind. <laughs> but uh, I, I said to him, yeah, let's go and take a look at it. He said, oh, I've, I've never seen a big magic show like that. Well, we got to the theater, and of course I was in the front row, and I immediately swapped seats for two or three rows back, because I don't want to look up the guy's nose right. for the whole performance, you see. And uh, anyway, the spotlight came down, identified me, and I stood up and, and took the usual casual bow that I do <laughs> and handed out a few leaflets. And, and, you, and you were wearing a cape at the time. Uh, yes, by, by coincidence, of, yes, course. of course. And, uh, and uh, so uh, Carfield smiled at me, and everybody applauded, and that was just fine. And then he did his flying effect. Mm-hmm. Now, we know how spectacular the flying effect is. One of the is. best magic tricks uh, ever done on stage. I think ever. Now, it's been patented. You can get the U.S. patent, <laughs> I right. think. You can find out how it's done, but that's not going to help you much. No. Because doing it is a different matter. Knowing exactly how it's done exactly. makes it, to me, a little more amazing. Yes. yes so it complicated. Yes. Oh, it is. Astonishing. But the setup on the thing, I mean, it takes that, that crew they have to work for several days to get the thing working at all. It's not like a card trick. And the genius of David Copperfield and John Gaughan. You want to exactly. give both of them credit. That, oh, yes. That, that combination can't be beat. So anyway, uh, this fellow is sitting with me in the fourth or fifth row, I guess. 
and uh, out comes David, and he does the the levitation effect. Uh, and well, it turns to be sotto voce, you see, right? <laughs> and of course, everybody heard. He said, "This is very dangerous." I looked at him. I said, "We'll talk afterwards." He said, "No, no, no. This is very dangerous." <laughs> I said, "You know, if anybody had," I said, let, 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 "Please, let's talk about it afterwards." <laughs> he said, "Yeah, but." Uh, so I just turned to him and I said, "Get this." And I leaned over and I said one word into his ear, and that was really "soto soto voce," <laughs> and no one heard it except <laughs> him. And he looked and he said. I don't see any. I said, that's why it's a trick. <laughs> that's why it's an illusion, you see. <laughs> well, he was convinced that, uh, and he talked to me afterwards. He said, no, I, I figured there was a pool. I, uh, you're you're going to fall off your chair listening to this, <laughs> both of you guys. He said, I'm sure there's a pool of liquid nitrogen underneath the stage. <laughs> yeah, see, you know what I mean? Yep. Wow. We understand how silly this is, and it's superconductivity. And the magnetic field, you see, that, that would stop pacemakers. I said, no, it's not the way it's done, and I don't want to go any further into the thing. But can you imagine, this is an advanced physicist. Sure. Now, now I, I expect him not to know how the thing is done, but I don't expect him to, well, from yeah. his expertise to come up with that kind he, of an explanation. He doesn't expect him not to know how it's done. Exactly. That's, that's exactly. <laughs> And he solved it the way point. he knew how. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I could build to, this. Let me show you how I would yeah, build it. Yeah, uh, to a to uh, a to a man with a hammer, everything's a nail. Yeah, exactly. exactly <laughs> right. Everything's a pool of liquid nitrogen. <laughs> yeah. You know, you brought up a point earlier uh, that I wanted to. Uh, I really wanted you to to speak about a, a bit. Um, uh, after way long ago, when the movie JFK came out, uh, I I did a little thing talking about how the back and the left when you when you shoot a gun through an object, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it can go right towards the gun. Hunters mm -hmm. know this mm -hmm. and so on. And you turned me uh, on to the um, uh, Luis, Luis Alvarez's uh, physics paper Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, from the 60s. It was yeah, a yeah. friend of JFK, wrote, yeah, yeah. wrote about the mm -hmm. physics of that, and we did a test. And I talked about it on, I think, the Larry King radio show. Oh, yeah? Uh, about how uh, the back and the left thing and the Kennedy does not show he was shot from the grassy knoll. Yeah. He could very easily have been shot from the, I mean, there's other stuff to talk about, but sure, sure. book depository. And I got a phone call. And, uh, if you're in show business, you know how rare this phone call is a personal phone call from David Letterman. Really? Yeah. Who said to me, does Oliver Stone know the physics? And is lying about it, or is he ignorant of the physics? And I said, it doesn't matter. And he said, it's all that matters. I said, no, no, it doesn't matter. He said, that's all that matters. Whether the psychic knows he's faking or not faking is all that matters to me. And I said, it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't affect the truth whatsoever. Uh, if Oliver Stone chooses not to learn that, it's even a different moral uh, infraction, but it's still a moral infraction. Uh, you get asked that question all the time. Now, there are some examples, and because we know these people can be litigious, we won't say what side they are on, but we, we know what side Uri Geller is on. And we also know... I suspect. Yeah. <laughs> we also know that there are, and you have 
you've met them, especially among dowsers and so on, mm-hmm. that are completely shut eye. They don't. Oh, yeah. They have no idea what they're doing is Absolutely, lying. Yeah. Where do you think most people lie on that? And where does the morality? What do you think the difference is? Most people lie on what dowsing or no, no, <laughs> just general and what you call the woo-woo stuff, the uh, the bullshit. Uh, how many of the people are? absolutely go home and say we're pulling a scam on the people and how many you talked about this with homeopathy uh what is your feeling and i'm asking totally emotionally totally yeah. poetically i'm not asking you for you know proof yeah i got a pretty good answer i think i i think it it satisfies me i think it depends on how successful they are in other words if you find out that you can do a stupid thing like bending keys to those people noticing you, mm-hmm. uh, doing it, or spoons, or whatever, uh, and you, you start out with the thing, and maybe you, you, you have some fun with it, you, suddenly you look around and you say, wait a minute, people are paying a lot of attention. I'm getting booked. I can get rich doing this. So it's very much a case of whether or not they're successful. I think a lot of the faith healers, for example, probably start out maybe even working with their, their parents or their father or something like that who did the same racket, thinking that maybe it does work. And then when they get into it, they find that they have to start using fakery and gimmicks and uh, semantic tricks and whatnot. Uh, and then uh, then they're guilty. Then they're guilty at that point. But I think a lot of, and I think that there probably is an in-between too where some of them think, well, maybe sometimes it does work and we should stay with it, but I know that I have to fake it. So there's, it, it's it's quite a spectrum with a bump in the middle of the people who are successful at it and make money at it. I have experienced uh, the end justifies the means. Mm-hmm. I have uh, experienced people who I think were absolute true believers and also using tricks Yeah, because they thought, yes, there is ESP, but i got to bump it up a little bit to convince people. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> And when you did the book, The Faith Healers, uh, the wheelchair thing uh, you talked about yeah, yeah. is an amazing example of that. Yeah. You, you want to explain that? I, I just, yeah, well, it blew my mind. I first uh, saw it with W.V. Grant. Now, I don't know if Grant's still in business, as a matter of fact. He had some problems. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think that I might have been responsible for them. Ho, ho, ho. But uh, we found out. <laughs> That when uh, he came to Fort Lauderdale for what they that it was really in the bag at that point. I had been suspecting it up until then, but when he got to Fort Lauderdale, uh, we saw a raft of wheelchairs that were unloaded from a huge van that he had. Now I say a raft of uh, I don't know how how many will fit on a raft. I've never <laughs> tried, and I don't see any point in doing that. But uh, it had to be at least thirty perhaps 40 wheelchairs of various kinds. Uh, they were unloaded. And, and they various were, kinds is important. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not matching. Oh, yeah, because some of them were, were very ratty looking, as a matter of fact, mm-hmm. and they creaked and they had flat spots on their tires and mm-hmm. whatnot, you know, uh, and uh, which uh, we would do if we were trying to fake a thing like yep, that. Yeah, certainly we, would. We, even if we hadn't didn't have to do it, if we could buy brand new ones, we wouldn't do that, would we? We, we would not. There you go. So they were being taken in backstage. I just made a note of that, and I was in sufficient disguise, I can assure you, when we saw them unpacking the vans. And um, then when some of the, the subjects there, who we had seen in line, some of them were distinctive, and they were walking, some of them with a, with a walking stick or a, a cane of some kind, 
uh, but uh, others not walking with any aid at all. Then when we saw them brought on stage in wheelchairs, riding in wheelchairs, as if they couldn't walk, and then being so-called healed by Reverend Grant, uh, stand up from the name of Jesus, kind of thing. And they would stand up and they would walk forward a little unsteadily because they just got out of a wheelchair. And I saw that. I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute. They know that they didn't need that wheelchair. Grant certainly knows that they didn't need that wheelchair. But then when I got to talk to them afterwards, they told me, oh, he said that, yes, you should get into the wheelchair so that we know that you require healing. Yeah. That's a sure sign, you see, when we wheel you out on stage, then I know that you need healing. Duh. Yeah, well, and, and also, uh, you know, to just be more comfortable. And this, you see in magic all the time in a combination of instant stooging, mm -hmm. is that you do one trick for the actual person who's on stage yeah. and another trick for the whole audience. Exactly. And that's, uh, it's a brilliant, very sophisticated technique in magic. Oh, you yes. Know, having someone pick a card beforehand yeah, yeah. out of a deck where you can do a card force yeah, yeah. and you can know what card they're going to pick and then tell them to look at that card and say, remember that card, think about that card, have that card in your head. And then when the actual show comes out, you do this all before the show, when it's just the two of you. Yeah. And then when the whole show comes out and you have hundreds of people watching, you then say, do you have a card in your head? Is that card just in your head? Do you have it anywhere else? You're just thinking of that card. You've told no one. Is that correct? You're thinking of the card. It's in your head. It's nowhere else. And the card is, and you name it. And you've done a an okay trick yeah, yeah. for the person. Yeah, yeah. You know, they don't if they don't know the card was forced, that's right. an okay trick. Game but for the, audience, for the audience for the audience, yeah. it's a yeah. miracle. Absolutely. Because you haven't brought up the deck of cards. And the thinking that moves that to the wheelchair, that the person stand up. Yeah, How yeah. do you feel? And yeah. the adrenaline rushes there and they feel terrific and they feel healed, you know, and the the mention is never you don't need the wheelchair. Well, there was a woman. Uh, very, very brilliant. Oh, idea. oh brilliant. Uh, and and yeah. evil. Oh, and very evil. Now, I was with a CBS crew uh, in New York. Uh, I've forgotten exactly where I was. It was CBS studio, in a way, New York. They asked me to go along and see a WV Grant uh, performance. And uh, I stood well at the back, and I did a lot of this thing with the hand of not showing the, the face completely. I just didn't want to be recognized, of course. And uh, they were taking notes, and they were uh, cutting away to me every now and then as I made comments. And we saw uh, a woman go up on stage. Uh, not go up on stage, be taken, I'm sorry. Uh, be taken in a wheelchair from the wings out onto the stage. And uh, Grant took her cane, which was laying across the arms of the wheelchair. So this is a sort of a half and half, you mm -hmm. see. It's a very clever uh, gimmick, psychologically. And he took her, her cane and threw it to the other side. Said, he said, make the devil mad. And he threw the cane away. And then he said, uh, he looked at her and he said, stand up and walk across the floor. Make the devil mad now. Come on. And she stood up and she walked a little unsteadily uh, across the floor. And she broke out into a big smile. Now, she could do that. And she knew that she could do that. And uh, so... Afterwards, I said, watch for this lady. She was very distinctive in appearance and in costume. And I said to the crew, keep your eyes open. Oh, there she is. So I called her over, and we're out in the lobby. And we had a 
an easy space to uh, where we could operate. And uh, the the uh, video crew was there. And I said to her, uh, I saw you standing up out of uh, the wheelchair. And she said, oh, yes, hallelujah, hallelujah, I'm healed. And I said, but you've got your cane back. And she said, oh, yes, because I'm still unsteady. I said, but you didn't come in in that wheelchair, did you? Because I, I knew very well mm-hmm. this had been supplied. And she said, well, no, I, I didn't. But he asked me to sit in it. And I said, okay, but don't you think that was a little dishonest? And she actually paused for a minute, hmm, kind of thing. And she sort of looked up and then she looked at me and said, well, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit. And she smiled and nodded <laughs> and turned and started to walk away. And we kept the camera on her. And then she spun around and she pointed the cane at me. And she said, but I still believe. <laughs> uh, isn't that the most discouraging thing? She's been in on a scam and she knows it was a scam if she thinks about it at all. Mm. And then she said, but I still believe you're not going to take that away from her. Mm-hmm. Well, did you, what's the Australian Skeptic Society has their dousing yeah. contest every year? And they have, uh, uh, you know, 20 dousers and anybody from the audience who wants to volunteer and do this. And uh, none of the dousers, none of the professional dousers did any better than chance. But one of the random volunteers did actually do better than chance, which is exactly as you expect in the math. When they asked her afterwards, she said, I'm starting a dousing business. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I'm the only one who can do it. <laughs> Isn't that astonishing? Okay, people, let's take a break here and talk about WordTune. Every year, U.S. businesses waste over $400 billion. That's $400 billion because bad writing causes confusion, misses the mark, or just takes too long to get to the point. On the flip side, better writing also helps businesses win and impress customers, enhance brand perception, improve internal communications, and strengthen relationship with critical partners. Better, faster writing means better business, which is why your team needs WordTune for teams. Going beyond simple spelling and grammar correction, WordTune is the only AI-powered writing tool that understands meaning, offering writing suggestions to help anyone achieve clear and compelling writing. It's the ultimate writing tool to elevate your entire team's writing instantly. You know, I was wondering how how it works, so I gave it a try. I really did. It was It was great. You know, I write a journal every day, okay? And I write about what I'm thinking about, right? Which is not, you know, not easy stuff. <laughs> you know, a little crazy. And I just took big hunks of my journal. I put it into WordTune and I was blown away. Uh, it understood the meaning. It really seemed to understand the meaning. And uh, it really did collaborate. I was able to make it more terse. I was able to make it more expansive. I was able to make it more colloquial. I was able to make it more formal. And it really did it while keeping what was in my heart. It was really like having a real-life writing editor sitting next to me. It was was just a really great thing. I'm using it. I'm using it to write better. I think it makes me uh, write better. So when can your team use WordTune? WordTune improves performance on any project, everything from internal emails to press releases, sales outreach to customer services support, and so much more. You can use WordTune anywhere you're writing online, including Google Docs, Slack, Outlook uh, Web, and WhatsApp. You can try WordTune for free at wordtune.com slash pen. Wordtune.com slash pen. Looking to elevate your entire team's writing? My listeners get a discount for their team today 
at wordtune.com slash pen. Wordtune improves writing efficiency up to four times. Better, faster writing means better business. Start writing with Wordtune at Word. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Wordtune.com slash pen. W-O-R-D-T-U-N-E. Wordtune.com slash pen. Check it out. It's really nutty. Really good. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. On holiday, there's nothing like doing nothing. As an Expedia member, you can save up to 30% when you add a hotel to your flight, so you can go out there with great ambition to do absolutely nothing for less. Expedia, made to travel. Now, uh, I want to hear, that's very discouraging, but you also have stories uh, uh, that are are very optimistic, right? Who have you seen that had the strength of character to Mm -hmm. do the biggest turnaround have you have have you had those kinds of stories of someone that you've explained the gag to and they've just gone oops okay i was wrong i wish i did pen you don't <laughs> oh, no. no i i wish i had the stories i just but people like that when they do a turnaround they don't want to talk about it because they've got to admit that they did this thing got to admit it to an audience and they got to admit it to themselves as well and i think the second part is the part that hurts most mm-hmm now, I, I, I've got to tell you, something else occurred to me that I, uh, this is a little bit out of left field, but you remember Jerry Andrus. Oh, sure. Yeah, Love oh, Jerry. Jerry Andrus, a dear friend of mine. Now, uh, for our audience who wouldn't know Jerry Andrus, probably not, he was the most honest man in the world, and he was painfully honest. Mm-hmm. He could not tell a lie, or he would have crumbled away into a pile of of gray dust onto the floor. <laughs> he had to tell the truth. Now, he did wonderful card tricks, mm-hmm. astonishingly good card tricks. And Jerry would do a thing. Now, you, you're going to be floored by this if, you haven't, if I haven't told you this story before. He would take a deck of cards and shuffle it up thoroughly, and he would riffle shuffle it and cut it several times. He'd say, now, that deck is thoroughly shuffled. I don't know the location. One card in that deck, nor do you. And he'd take it off the table and then turn it, to face him himself and put it beneath the table. He'd say, now I'm just going to go through this deck here and I'm going to glance at a card and okay. And he'd square it up again, shuffle it a little bit more and lay it on top of the table. Now I took that deck and I, I glanced at a card. I'm going to ask you to name any card at all, sir, any card in the deck. The fellow would say, Oh, some people I know would say the three of clubs. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he'd say three of clubs. To then pick up the deck and do a wonderful miracle because he was very good at instantly locating cards. That was a shuffle deck and such. 
But the beautiful part of it was he didn't see the card. He looked at it, but he didn't see it because he defocused his eyes. Can you believe this? He would have it beneath the table, and when he looked down, he would defocus his eyes. He could do that, so he couldn't see the cards. So when he brought the deck up and said, now, I've looked at a card in that deck. But he didn't say, I saw a card in the deck. He wouldn't actually lie. And it, it, was, it was just ad-lib from then on. I would, I would sit uh, on a couple occasions. I sat with Jerry Anders, and I, uh, I argued with him. Mm-hmm. about the definition of lying. Oh, yes, I know, and he discussed it with me, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I, 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 I drove him crazy with mm-hmm. that, because my feeling, and the question I always ask, and the question I asked Jerry, which, if you know uh, Jerry's background, becomes a funnier question. Yes. I said, if you were in a <laughs> monogamous relationship <laughs> with a woman, and you had gone off and had sex with a man, and she said to you, are you seeing another woman? Would you answer no and feel you were telling the truth? <laughs> now, we, we know, because Jerry did lie, that Jerry was a virgin. Yeah. And if he had had sex, I think it may have been with a woman that he would be leaning towards. So this whole issue is is designed to drive jerry crazy (laughs) but but that particular question is uh what i consider to be the difference between kindergarten lying yeah yeah and adult lying Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh when when your wife asks you are you seeing another woman the question she's asking is not are you seeing another woman Mm -hmm. but have you been sexually faithful within our relationship yeah that's the question and the words don't matter no part of what we do as people is try to uh figure out honestly what the person is really asking us. Well, when the husband says, would you rephrase that, dear? <laughs> you know, that, you know, <laughs> he knows he's in trouble. <laughs> but well, Jerry but you, was an astonishing man, though. Oh, I, astonishing. In so many but, ways. Uh, so many things in his act were those kinds of lies. Well, the seeing and looking and that kind of stuff. So I would sit with Jerry, who I, I agree with you completely, the most honest man who ever lived, and I would sit and call him a liar, because that's the kind of guy I am. Well, <laughs> now, I, I must tell you this. It's, it's many, many years ago. This has got to be good 30 years ago. So I don't think any of the principals are, are still around and listening <laughs> to this program. <laughs> uh, that doesn't mean they're dead. No, but uh, all of them are. Um, I, Jerry came to Florida to tour a bunch of magic clubs and, and give his lecture to them. Mm-hmm. And it was a brilliant lecture. Brilliant oh. lecture. And he sold his lecture notes uh, mm-hmm. afterwards, and he got a fee from the magic club. You see, that's the way he made his living, essentially. So he said he was coming to Florida. I said, well, you come right to Fort Lauderdale. I'll put you up, and I'll uh, offer you my car. We'll drive around. We'll do the whole of Florida if you want. I'm yours because I've got a couple of months free here. So uh, allow me to be your host. And he said, oh, that's very nice, Steve. Well, Jerry arrives. <laughs> and, oh, I'm, excuse me. I'm being called here. Now, this is... Uh, is it your agent? <laughs> You're not on that Pendulet show, are it's, you? It's, what it is, it's, it's someone it. who is alive and listening to the show saying, don't tell that <laughs> yeah, story. Yeah. Do not tell that story, Randy. I, I should have switched. It's my wife. She wants to know if I've sex with a man. <laughs> <laughs> so, in any case, 
Let's edit that all out in our minds. Okay. So uh, Jerry uh, gets up in front of the crowd. Now, the average age of a member of a magic club in Florida is deceased. <laughs> and um, they're, they're nice old folks, but they keep on showing you the same damn trick every time you go to a magic meeting. I don't go to them anymore because I know everyone is saying, have you seen this? Because it's the only trick they know. You've seen enough paddle tricks. Yeah, exactly. Enough paddle tricks. To well, I made them. the mistake, you know, of once taking a date, a very attractive woman to a magic convention <laughs> and there's nothing stupider you can do oh. you can't move her across the room no she can't be every single guy has to do his little trick yes, that he yes, learned yes. in order to pick up women and it's never worked but he's going to try it that one time so yes if you're oh, and the same thing happens if you're an attractive woman or if you're a professional magician because they've got to show you that uh, little paddle trick oh, so at a magic cool. convention i am an attractive woman but go on <laughs> <laughs> uh, that I got to see. Oh, yeah. Yeah. However, here is Jerry uh, standing up in front of this crowd, and he looks around the room, and I'm sort of glancing around the room, too. They don't understand one word that's coming out of his mouth, because it's all very subtle stuff. It was very deep stuff. It was for professionals and for advanced amateurs, and uh, it, it wasn't, uh, here's the way you do so-and-so. These were general principles and how you approach this and how you approach that. And they were all represented in his lecture notes, which, I, as I said, he would sell uh, after their performance. And uh, so he finished his lecture and got quite a nice round of applause. Everybody smiled and waved their hands and whatnot. And the president who steps forward and says, I'm sure we, we uh, know that Mr. Andrews uh, uh, is aware of our appreciation and uh, We'd like to have him back again, maybe in a couple of years, Jerry. That'd be all right. And Jerry said, yes, yes, of course. And he said, yeah, he'll now sell his lecture notes. And Jerry held up his hand and said, wait, wait, wait. No, no, I won't be selling the lecture notes at, at this uh, appearance. <laughs> he said, oh? He said, oh, all right. He said, well, uh, let's g give him a big round of applause. Jerry Andrus. Can you get a big round of applause, Jerry Andrus? And he, so the, the crowd started to disperse a bit. And uh, he said to Jerry, he said, why won't you sell the lecture notes? He said, oh, no, that would be dishonest because I'd be selling them things that they wouldn't understand at all. <laughs> and they would just put them in their bookcase. And uh, when they died, their, their wife would throw them away or something, you know, because uh, wives don't appreciate that sort of thing. And, of course, I was listening to this, and that's exactly what I would expect out of Jerry. And then the, the boss goes into his pocket, and he says, well, here's your check. And Jerry said, and I have to refuse that, too, because this is not fair at all. These people didn't understand <laughs> my appearance here at all. And so Jerry walked away and started to pack up the props. I went to the president of the magic club and said, give me the check. <laughs> and I, I put it in my pocket. It was made payable to Jerry Andrews. Yeah, I keep, said, keep I'll get it to him. I'll get it to him. So went back home. Jerry's room, I, I'd given a room upstairs in the house, and I went in there, snuck in there, I must admit, and I found his checkbook, and it had deposit slips at the back. So I tore out a deposit slip, and I endorsed <laughs> it with the signature as best I could, and I mailed it to the bank, <laughs> to his bank, you see. Now, Jerry got that check 
But he never knew that he got that check. <laughs> I never told him. So well, had, now he knows, you see. He had a, he had a, he had a bank balance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when he, when he yeah, died, there was never quite. <laughs> they never quite squared up. But can you imagine? He never knew that he got that check. And I, I would have thought that if he suspected I did that, he would call me. Did you do this kind of thing? But no, it wasn't even like $100 or maybe $200, I don't know. And I just sent it to his bank, and he got it and never knew it. But what I do know about Randy uh -oh. is that when he called you, and if he had called you and said, did you do that, your answer would have been, no, sir. Because <laughs> you have no compunctions about lying whatsoever. Not at all. Not, not, a, not a scrap of compunction. Not, not one bit. You know, I'm thinking if that rule was followed, that they did not understand my lecture, yeah. and therefore uh, I will uh, I will not take the money. Bob Dylan would be a pauper. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be flat broke, going. I don't think they really understood Desolation Row. I'm not getting paid tonight. Uh, Bob, uh, Bob Penn is only only kidding. <laughs> Godot is applauding here, but uh, Penn is only kidding. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he was a uh, he was a fascinating man, and I argued with him. You know, everybody else, uh, many other people, dealt with Jerry as just an eccentric and just kind of you know a kindly eccentric. Yeah. And, and they they were very good to him, but you wouldn't. I engaged him on everything. <laughs> I argued with him about everything. I argued with him about whether um, my argument with him, and I, I, I'd like to hear your take on this. My argument with him on the lying about magic mm -hmm. was. Is Robert De Niro allowed to do Taxi Driver? When you go to the movie theater, Robert mm -hmm. De Niro is on camera saying that he professionally drives a taxi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that he is infatuated with Jodie Foster. Mm -hmm. uh, is he allowed to do that? And if he's allowed to do that in the proscenium of the movie theater, why aren't you allowed to say that your hand is empty when it's not? Oh, well, of course, of course. Yeah. But it, if the audience understands Robert De Niro is an actor, yeah. plays parts, you're a magician, you play the yeah, part of exactly. a magician, exactly. it's perfectly fair. Of course it is. Yeah. But Jerry had this no, no. personal thing that it had to be the absolute letter of the truth, even if it was not the spirit of the truth. And exactly. I, I, was, I would always try to make the point to him that the spirit of the truth trumped the letter of the truth. And while doing a magic trick, you could lie, even, even in the words, because the morality was uh, was greater than that. Well, Jerry was a telephone lineman, you know. I know. And uh, you know why he quit. I, I do, but you should say it. <laughs> well, uh, they, <laughs> the boss came to him one day and said, uh, uh, you got to join the union now. Everyone is joining the union. And Jerry said, I don't want to join the union. And he said, oh, but it's absolutely required by company policy. We signed a contract. So every lineman and everybody working for the company has to sign this uh, this agreement. They have to join the union. And he said, I'm sorry. And that's it. And he walked out. <laughs> and that was the end of it. He would not do that because that was not something that he felt should be done. And I don't know exactly why. I never argued with him about being a telephone lineman or not. But uh, I don't quite understand that. But there there probably was something deeper to it. Yeah, well, you know, uh, he was uh, he was a he, he was a fascinating the idea, and you know, I'm also fascinated with uh, with Tiny Tim, mm. uh, and Tiny Tim also uh, had that inability to lie. Really, you know, he would go on uh, the Howard Stern show, and any question Howard asked him, uh, embarrassing or uncomfortable or anything, 
uh, Tiny Tim would just answer. Mm. And it's really phenomenal the kind of uh, effect that has on who you are yeah, yeah. if you take that simple statement that you'll just answer anything. There's a certain kind of power that comes with uh, with truth and honesty that's been talked about, of course, by, by poets and artists and uh, philosophers forever. But when you actually see it, you know, actually see the power of a simple, truthful statement. It's a, mm -hmm, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a, uh, it's a beautiful thing. I wish I'd met, uh, met Tiny Tim, uh, Herbert Kari. Yeah. Did you uh, ever work at, uh, Hubert's Museum in New York? Where, oh, yeah. Where Lenny Bruce and Tiny Tim oh, both yeah. worked? Oh, yeah. I, I actually worked there with Congo, the Jungle Creep. Well, tell us all about <laughs> those. Oh, well. Congo is, uh, certainly, uh, unless he lived to be 200, uh, is uh, certainly deceased by now. But Congo the Jungle Creep was a, a, a fine-looking black guy uh, who you wouldn't really notice on the street. He just looked like any other gentleman. Uh, and uh, he put on, on makeup, which was just atrocious, uh, because he wanted to look bizarre, but not cleverly bizarre. He just wanted to look like a guy who didn't know how to put on makeup, kind of thing, you know? And um, he would do a wonderful act with climbing a ladder of swords. Or pardon, not swords, I'm sorry, uh, saws. Uh -huh. And he would have regular carpenter's saws, the, the big kind. Uh, he would have them mounted in a, in a little stepladder sort of thing, I think four of them, and a platform at the top. And uh, he would put the, the teeth upwards, of course. And he would do, oh, I mean, he had did it so often, so long, for so many years, he got to be absolutely superb at it. <laughs> there was, the, the saws got smaller as you, as you went up towards the top. And when he got to the top one, he had a way, and I never quite caught it, of jamming his toes and his heel on it in such a way that when he lift it up on it, he'd give a scream, and he'd lift up on it, and it would come right onto the slot, and it would look like it was actually <laughs> embedded in the sole of his foot. And <laughs> that was, oh, that wrenched everybody in the place. They'd go, oh, no! You know, they just imagined that he'd slid on it, and it just sliced right into his foot, and then he'd throw it from him, and like that, he'd say, I'll never do that again, and then do it the next show, of course. <laughs> but he had wonderful techniques like that. And, uh, oh, some wonderful liquid tricks as well with mixing uh, colors and such in, in containers, uh, dyes, food dyes, and shaking them all up and everything, and then being able to reach in his hand and come out with the red and then come out with the blue and various things. like He was very, very clever. He was an old-time magician from way back from carnival days, and what he did, he did beautifully. Character and a half, but he would break character whenever he saw someone who was with it. If you did the little yeah. finger upside the nose, as in uh, the, the sting. sting, if you did that little thing with uh, Congo, he'd just give you a wink, and you'd meet him afterwards. And uh, what did you want to know? <laughs> you know that uh, that uh, Sands of Arabia, the yeah, pulling yeah, yeah. the dye out mm -hmm. of the out of the water. It's interesting you bring that up because that is one of the big arguments that Teller and I have had for almost forty years. Is Teller like the egg bag trick? 
and I hate it. <laughs> and I like the sands of Arabia, and Teller hates it. Really? So our, our career for 40 years has been me trying to get sands of Arabia into our show, and <laughs> Teller trying to get the egg bag in, and constantly being vetoed. But I want to hear what your act was at Hubert's, and uh, talk a little bit about what Hubert's was like. Because I'd read about it with Lenny Bruce, yeah, yeah, and I never had a real sense of what it really was. Yeah, well, I'll tell you about that, and I'll tell you my one of the big regrets of my life, and I, I, I screwed up on that, and... I could have something that I that was worthless and to the people who were involved. But anyway, let's get on to the Huber's Dye Museum was it's H U B E R S Huber's Dye Museum. Oh, sorry, yeah. And it was from way way the hell back. I don't know what the history of it was, but I'm sure Google knows someplace. <laughs> and people right now, I'm on it. Are, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, there you go. Gudo is on it, ladies and gentlemen. So it's all solved. Um, but it was on uh, the south side of 42nd Street, about halfway between uh, what is that, 8th and 9th, I, I don't, or Broadway and, I guess Broadway not. Broadway and 8th. 8th, 8th, yeah. yes, it would be, of course. Um, and um, even after Huber's uh, moved out of there, Huber's moved out of there, uh, the brass letters stayed in the pavement, and that's the thing that I wanted. Oh. I wanted the brass letters. And I, I said, uh, to some of the construction guys there. Here, here's my phone number, and here I'll I'll pay handsomely. I really will. I will pay if you tell me when they come to remove this concrete, because I wanted them to load it on into a van for me, and I would reassemble it. You see, the sure. the, the big brass letters oh, worn great. by millions of feet, of course, over uh, about half a century, at least half a century that it was there, probably more. So uh, it was a downstairs thing. They had a bit of a museum upstairs. And the downstairs thing was the show, however. And they had, uh, well, Congo the Jungle Creep was a great star there. And they had uh, the skinny man. And how, big, how big was it? How many people would be in there? It was not very big. I think if they got if they got 25 people in there, it was pretty crowded. And all standing, right? Yeah, all standing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And probably, what, a, a, like a 15, 20 minutes? Oh, yeah, 15, 15 minutes tops, I'm sure. And they really had a way of rushing them out of there, too. Because and when were, you, when were you there? What year? Oh, when you ask me years, I've had so many of them <laughs> uh, that I don't remember. But would have been late 50s, early 60s? Well, uh, or earlier. No, it would be later than that. It would be 72 or so. Oh, that late? Yeah. It was still open then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, see, I could have. That means I probably could have seen it. Although we may have an answer coming out. <laughs> no, no, there's right? not much on it, I'm, I'm sad to say. Oh, really? You know, I looked up the article about Huber's Dime Museum closed, and it said, it is no more. That's the entire article. <laughs> <laughs> but well, you know, so much for that. Lenny Bruce gave us the address. <laughs> worked there in the late 50s. So I'm told, yes. And uh, Lenny Bruce worked with a guy who would dive off a chair onto his head. That was his whole act, and Lenny <laughs> Bruce would uh, would talk about that. But that's uh, it was before that. You know, I I went to a lot of uh, work and failed mm -hmm. to try to find uh, in Diane Arbus's mm -hmm. collection some of the pictures she took of you. Mm -hmm. uh, and you knew her fairly well. Oh, I knew her very well. She said he had breakfast at least one day a week when I lived in Greenwich Village. She came around regularly. Charlie Reynolds and and. Diane and myself used to go out to take breakfast. And you also helped her with some of those wonderful freak yes. pictures she took. Yeah, what you I worked with, uh, with uh, uh, Gangler Brothers Circus, mm -hmm. which was uh, 
on West 4th, I guess it was. I, I've forgotten now. Isn't that awful? Uh, but it was just a little walk up. It was above a steam bath. <laughs> fact, yeah, we got a lot of steam there. Uh, we're on the second floor. And it was run by, um, well, a fellow named Gangler, who was a, an old pitch man from way back. And I worked there as a magician. I did a full scale levitation. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the whole thing. I'm sure as good as Copperfield. At, at, at least. Yes. <laughs> well, no, not quite. <laughs> I must admit. I used your son, Benjamin, and uh, he, he floated up, and he used to tell me terrible jokes on the way up because the music was loud. <laughs> and uh, I often wonder what happened to Benjamin. Oh, goodness, I wonder. <laughs> yeah, yeah, anyway, you got me reminiscing now. You've taken me way back, you see. But uh, how did you meet Diane Arbus? She, I think probably Charlie Reynolds probably introduced her to me, or somehow like that, maybe maybe he was having lunch in Howard Johnson's, and I walked in because I frequently ate in Howard Johnson's on 6th Avenue. Yeah, and she uh, she took a lot of pictures of you, right? Oh, she took, now when I t talk about Diane taking pictures, now we're talking about days of 35 millimeter, folks, you may not know what that is, <laughs> but you had to stop at 36, you see. <laughs> now there's reasons for that, but I won't get into it now. Uh, yeah, she would load the camera, and then it was just simply a chicka, 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 chicka. Uh, turn, chicka, chicka, that's it, a little bit more of that, chicka, 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 chicka. and soon she'd be finished with the reel, and zippity, 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 rewinding it, and then tossing it into her handbag there, and loading another film into it instantly, and continuing on, she shot them at such a rate, and she, uh, I've forgotten the name of, oh, isn't that awful? Slim somebody. Uh, he was a very skinny juggler who did a wonderful, wonderful act. Nobody we know. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we only know fat jugglers. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, he worked there at, oh, I, I can't think of the names of some of the other people. But I introduced her to all of those people. As soon as someone showed up uh, new at Ganger Brothers Circus, I would, uh, or at uh, Huber's, matter of fact, I would introduce her. Now, did you ever see the pictures she took of you, prints of no. them or anything? Never I saw never saw one picture. I don't know that she ever made prints. Uh -huh. She might have <laughs> because she had a way of just developing film, having a contact she yep. didn't, made in those days. Yeah, sure. I went. I got in touch with her estate. Yeah, and said, you know, is there any? And they they said that the 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 amount, the number of oh, pictures yeah. she took, the negatives were were overwhelming. And I said, you know, I would just love uh, from my buddy James Randy to have a a few of those pictures. I'm going to take another run at it. I think uh, oh, try I don't again. Know how they'd ever find it? But they mean she's a very important artist, a oh, very important is. photographer. And in that case, they must be cataloging them. You know, the other thing I was going to say this about the. Um, I'll tie this in. Um, you know, Andy Warhol mm -hmm. when he came to our show took a lot of pictures of yeah. us. Oh, and really? I've also done the Warhol estate and said, boy, I'd sure like some pictures of us taken by Warhol. <laughs> but you know, I, I, I tell this story often. I don't believe I've ever told it to you. Um, but uh, it was a, a moment when, and this is perhaps a little shocking, when I realized that um, I might be too quiet as a skeptic. Um, you, wait, a minute, wait a minute, I gotta work on that. <laughs> gotta work on that now. Okay, go ahead. But you I think you'll remember this story. Uh we did a we did a show in the eighties for Showtime, a, a movie called Invisible Thread. Oh yeah. And in well. Invisible Thread we had uh we had you, mm -hmm. we had G. Gordon Liddy, we had Andy Warhol. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of other mm -hmm. people in it. It was actually Warhol's last appearance before he died. Yes. 
And uh, I remember one of the funny lines that Eddie Gordetsky, uh, Eddie G, who writes on uh, every show in the world now. You know, mm-hmm. he wrote wrote on uh, Two and a Half Men, Two and, a half sure. men and you know, Big Bang and all of those. Eddie's one of the funniest people that ever lived. And it was uh, uh, you, me, G. Gordon Liddy, and Andy Warhol. The four of us were standing chatting, and Eddie walked by and said, Boy, the hate list for these four includes everybody on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be quite correct. Yeah. Exactly. Did I ever tell you what Andy Warhol, uh, the discussion that Andy Warhol had with me at that time? Well, that's what I might be telling. I might be telling that story. He was talking about the crystals. Don't interrupt him telling your story. Yes. Yes. And that was a moment for me that was very, very profound because Andy was saying that he was using crystals to heal. And uh, and you were arguing with him. Yeah. And you were saying over and over again, uh, the crystals will not help you. And then you actually backed down in your position and said to him, and I remember this sentence because it's chilling. You said to him, okay, even if you keep up the crystals, please get real medical attention. Yeah. Don't put aside the medical attention, but get real crystals. And Warhol was just, you know, uh, as one of the most important artists of the 20th century, certainly the most important American artist of the 20th century, uh, in my opinion. Um, as you kept saying to this, to this icon, you know, the person that produced the Velvet Underground, you know, the soup cans, mm-hmm. as you kept just beating him up mercilessly. And he was doing every kind of Warhol trick he could to be kind of aloof (laughs) and distant. And you were saying to him, no, 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 you need to go to a doctor. The crystals will not help you. Please, please, please. And you were pleading with him. And at a certain point, everybody turned on you. Everybody standing around kind of went, okay, Randy, you've made your point to Andy. He's (laughs) he's going where he's going to go. And it was, um, I believe it was less than two months later yeah. that Andy was dead. That's right. And uh, many people, once again, we don't have all the information. It's like Steve Jobs. But many people believe he went in for emergency surgery mm-hmm. uh, for something that shouldn't have been emergency surgery. Had he gone to a, uh, uh, yeah. a, a legitimate doctor yeah, yeah. earlier, we, of course, we don't know. We can never predict. We can never know for sure. But he had, would very well might have had a chance of being saved. Well, I recall that he dead. opened his shirt for me just a, a mm-hmm. brief glance at his chest, and he was covered in amethyst crystals on gold chain. Yeah, it was like like a solid mass <laughs> of small amethyst crystals all over his chest. And he says, "As long as I have these, I'm safe because that's what amethyst does for you." And that's when I blew up, of course, and said, "No, you got this illness." And I don't recall what it was, but it, it was a liver thing, I believe. I, oh, yeah, yes, I think you're right. Yeah, I think I think it was, yeah. And uh, he was turning all kinds of colors, as a matter of yeah. fact, jaundice sort of colors. And, um, yeah, I did get quite perturbed over that, and I couldn't get through to him. He was fluffing me off, and then the rest of the crowd turned against yeah, me. Yeah, and I, I was thought, one of them. Yeah, I was one of them that thought, hey, Randy, you know, I know you do this whole <laughs> skeptics thing, but this is one of the most important artists of the 20th century, just chill down a little bit. I mean, I, don't, I never said those words. No, no. But that no, was no. kind of my feeling. Yeah, yeah. And then Andy died, and you, you can't help but thinking, if I jumped in on Randy's side, is there a point where Andy Warhol would have said, okay, fuck it. I'll keep right. the emphasis on, but I'm going to go to the doctor. And would that would that change history? And that's the other thing with, with Steve Jobs. You know, I don't know if you knew no, Steve Jobs. Never did. I knew him a little bit. 
and we we had those discussions about uh about his you know his his belief in some of this stuff that was a little fringy and you have this you know how much can you push somebody yeah, where does respect true. end and of course it's exactly the same from the other side yeah, if you're yeah, a born again yeah. christian and you believe that yeah, yeah. randy pan and Godot were going to hell how hard do you push before you've crossed uh, yeah, yeah. the line yeah, exactly. of polite society that's always the problem how far do you go with andy warhol i well, mean could you have saved his life? Well, I must say that I, I cracked a bad joke. It was well, a couple of years after after Warhol died, but I did uh, on some other radio program, not this one. <laughs> uh, I, I did crack sort of a bad joke because I, I remember I, 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 it just occurred to me while I was being interviewed. I said, well, he once told me, and he showed me the amethyst crystals, and he said, you know, if I if I took this off, I would die. And I said, well. When he had the operation, they obviously took it off him, and he died. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. Mean, but and uh, there are people, uh, and uh, once again, we won't name names, but famous people that I know personally, who used that argument and said this was Western medicine that failed Andy Warhol because he went to the hospital <laughs> and they were unable to save him. What is your take uh, while we're talking about the? I, I always kind of put these together, the uh, the Andy Warhol, Doug Henning, Jim Henson. Oh, yeah. What is your take on the on the uh, Henning? Do you think that he was also uh, at least put in trouble by TM as opposed to... Uh, well, for my next book, funny you should ask. Because, I mean, you were good friends with Henning. I mean, oh, yeah. He, he, he loved you. I have a, a beautiful letter from him, which I'm publishing in the, in the, the coming book. Uh, <laughs> very, very touching letter. Very touching. Uh, but I must say, Henning infuriated me in so many ways because... We should also say, uh, Doug Henning, uh, with the, his show, The Magic Show on Broadway, yeah. was the most famous magician oh, for all the 70s. I mean, oh, uh, no question. and longer than that, uh, Doug Henning was everything. And it's, it's not... Uh, Stevie's specials are still up on YouTube. And somebody who invented a... Uh, uh, although we all made fun of him invented a, a kind of character for a magician that we hadn't seen before. Yeah. He took him out of top hat and tails, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he had, was this kind of hippie, hippie tie-dyed yeah, yeah, yeah. tie magician mm -hmm. who, who was just, uh, <laughs> you know... Uh, you do that very well. I do, I do. I made fun of him a lot. But I want to make sure that people know that before you go telling the story. Yeah, well, so you were talking about the letter you have from him. Yeah, I have this beautiful letter from him. I, I won't get into the details of it. It's, uh, it's very touching, and he... Uh, he frankly told me that uh, that he had very bad reviews for Merlin, mm -hmm. the show Merlin, and uh, that he reached his, his dressing room that day and uh, he opened up a letter and it was from me, and I was being very encouraging to him, and he was he was quite touched, quite moved by that, and uh, then he he signed it. Uh, well. Wait for the book. <laughs> no, but it, it, was, it was very touching. And um, Henning was taken by the, not by the Maharishi himself, he was just a giggling old man, but uh, the, the organization, the old TM movement, took mm -hmm. Henning for a ride. Uh, I actually saw, Doug, somebody drove me to it. It was a place in North uh, Florida. I, I don't remember the exact location. But there was an empty lot there, and they had him on a yellow bulldozer 
uh, was painted with flowers and such. And Henning was all dressed up in his hippie garb. And he actually drove the bulldozer for a few yards. And they took some news pictures of it. He was breaking ground for a Vedic center mm-hmm. that he proposed to build. Yeah, wasn't it an amusement park? Wasn't he building yes, it? Yes, yes. It was supposed to yeah. it was supposed to be levitated. The whole amusement park was going to be levitated. <laughs> yeah, sure. I want to see that. Liquid nitrogen. Pools yeah, of liquid yeah, nitrogen. Very you got it. See, you know these things, don't you? You secretive so-and-so. You. But uh, no, and none of them ever got off the ground. He just... <laughs> <laughs> never, <laughs> yeah. never got off the ground. A little rim shot there. Uh, but the point is that he, he raised, for the Maharishi's organization, he raised fortunes. And uh, I ran into him just about about the time that he started to refuse medical aid when he had his, his physical problems. He, he looked awful. Oh, Penn, he looked, he, looked, he looked like he was dead already. He was thin. He spoke in a very thin voice and such. But he, he kept on smiling and saying, no, no, TM is going to save me. TM is going to save me. And you know for a fact that he refused medical attention. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In fact, I've heard it from a couple of different sources. That heartbreaking. TM was going to save him. But he was, he's a, he was a beautiful guy. Mm-hmm. He was very, very naive. And he, uh, another letter, I don't know whether I had this from going into the book. He said, uh, Randy, I, I promise you, uh, uh, TM, meditation levitation is real and you're going to be the very first person to whom i demonstrated of course that never de- demonstrated i don't I, I think he believed that he could uh, levitate yeah uh well, there's a story of johnny thompson yelling at him you know this one no johnny going up to die well i should also say you know johnny thompson works with us and worked with right. lance burton and i believe present company excluded <laughs> uh, perhaps the 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 greatest magical mind alive johnny thompson oh, <laughs> hey agreed agreed <laughs> no question johnny got up to doug at a magic convention and got, really got down on his hands and he said come on doug just an inch half an inch give me a half an inch doug just half an inch and i'll buy it <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds like johnny, That's johnny. <laughs> he's a patient loving soul oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. but you know what uh, I always had a bone to pick with uh, with uh, Doug Henning because we were working uh, uh, Penn and Teller with, with, with our third member of our group was the Asparagus Valley Cultural Society oh, yeah. at a Society of American Magicians convention in the late 70s and we were to do our first half of our show and then during our intermission Doug Henning was to come out and interview Dave Vernon one of the mm-hmm. most the most important classical yeah, yeah. magician of the 20th century. Yeah. Uh, and Dave Vernon and uh, Doug Henney were going to do a an interview during the um, intermission of the art show. Sure. And they came out and Doug Henney interviewed him for a little over an hour. <laughs> really? <laughs> so we did, you know, 50 minutes and then over an hour intermission, and then we come back with the second half of our show. That was a good so, night. So my feeling was, go ahead, motherfucker. Turn down medical treatment. That's fine with me. No. <laughs> but uh, he, he was a wonderful guy and also very supportive, you know, because we were, we were just starting out, and he was a superstar. And mm-hmm. Henning was one of the people who was, um, who was so supportive and one of the people I respect this so much also Siegfried Roy, there was no joke 
that I could make about Doug Henning and no joke I could make about Siegfried Roy that would cross any line to piss them off. They had this deep understanding of show business. And Henning knew that if I was making fun of him as a hippie and doing his voice and doing all of that, it was because he was famous and part of the job. You know, when the Sex Pistols make fun of the Beatles, they don't bring the Beatles down. You know, it just shows how uh, how famous the Beatles oh, yeah, are. Yeah. And what do you know about the um, the Jim Henson uh, medical treatment stuff? I know very little about it. Very little about it. I, I wish I knew... Uh, more of oh, I think it was pneumonia. Goudeau was doing Henson on the on, on Google uh, right it was, now. It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't pneumonia, but it was a uh, it was a respiratory thing. Yeah, and I've heard both sides. I've heard people say that uh, he could not have gotten medical treatment quick enough to have helped him, and I've heard people say that the Christian scientist background, which he didn't follow closely, no. may have, may have slowed that down. But you know that is the answer, and the reason I'm I'm, I'm hitting this, uh, you know, the the Warhol, the Steve Jobs, the Henning thing is there is this thing constantly said to skeptics that this stuff does no harm and uh it really really does do real serious harm in terms of uh you know not only in terms of pushing away medical attention but pushing away real medical attention is a is a huge deal and not only that it's the children of these people the people who voice this on their kids who are defenseless, this is is unforgivable. I ha- There is no excuse for that sort of thing, none whatsoever. I don't care how convinced you are. If you see your kid wasting away and a medical person says, we can save this child, and you say, no thanks, I'd rather go yeah. the woo-woo way, that, that's unforgivable. And uh, it, it's not a small number of children that die Absolutely. every year because of that. What did you find out about? Well, Henson had quit uh yeah, I knew he had. Uh, Fifteen years earlier, he had uh, stepped out of his religion, uh, and had actually consulted a physician uh, a day or two before he died. Okay, so and so I, yeah, was, I just have never. I've heard both sides of that that he slowed it down a little bit, and that he went and got medical attention as soon as he could. I've heard. I've heard yeah, both. He, was, he went in at five in the morning, and and uh, couldn't they couldn't save him. Yeah. So, but uh, certainly with, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure about Steve Jaws, but. Uh, the Andy Warhol and the, and the Henning thing are, uh, and it's amazing that those are two cases that even though they're famous people, mm. uh, they're personal to us. Yeah. We do both Henning and Andy Warhol, and you have to think, I mean, that's an astonishingly high number. Yes. That we would know yes. two people that, yeah, uh, yeah. that have that, that are, that are also famous sure. that we can, uh, we can, uh, and there are lots of other examples of people that we didn't know personally yeah. uh, that, that that are well known. And you say, "Well, that's good covering our tracks. Guy. That way, we can't be blamed for any of them." <laughs> yeah, that's very true. No, no, it turns out there are a lot of other people we didn't know died the same way. Really, good we point, had nothing to do with all of them. Good point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, well, look, you're looking at a guy here uh, who had a double bypass mm-hmm. and colon cancer and six months of chemotherapy. Medical science saved me. I hear people out there saying, boo, hiss. <laughs> but there's no question of it. Medical science is responsible for me being here. Whether that's good or bad, I, I'll let you make the, the decision on that. But it's true. And uh, it, when I go in to see my oncologist, which I just did last week, uh, I had tears in my eyes because this <laughs> woman saved my life. No question about it. I mean... Uh, and she's a lovely lady, too, and so damn smart. 
I got her. I got her comps for your shows. As a matter of fact, <laughs> and, and in exchange for saving your life. Yes, exactly. Wow. <laughs> Two tickets. That's, wow, that's a good deal. That's amazing. Well, she she slipped me a hundred in a way, so it's okay. <laughs> made up for it. You know, Randy, something I've, I I haven't I, I've emailed you about, but I haven't talked to you about it all. Is uh, is you coming out as being gay? In your eighties, what? what? <laughs> in your eighties, right? How, how yeah, old are you? But what did that feel like? What did it feel like to have you kept that secret? You know? No, uh, no, Chad. I never kept that secret. That's the point. All my friends knew. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and my family certainly knew. And anybody who ever asked any questions and such, I would tell them outright. No, I'm gay, and I have been gay all of my life uh, that I know since I was a tiny kid. Uh, that's the way it's always. I never made any any doubts, any left any doubts in anybody's mind. I just came out with it, uh, no problem at all. But the reason that I came out with it formally was, well, first of all, I had a way of doing it now, you see, which is the internet, mm-hmm. and that's as simple as you can get. Boom, boom, there you go. You're on Google and the whole thing. <laughs> and um, I simply because I was coming out with a. Uh, uh, a Magician in the Laboratory, which is my 10th book, and it's mm. quite autobiographical in, in many aspects. Mm. And uh, I didn't want any of the, uh, the the grubbies out there saying, aha, but what he didn't tell you, etc., which they they used to do from time to time. But I never responded to those people. But they never asked me the question. If I yeah. had had the question, I would have said, yes. What else do you want to know? I <laughs> never had any hesitation about it. I I have never been embarrassed by it whatsoever. Not well when I was in in uh, in high school. Yes. Oh, certainly. I mean, there there had to be. Oh, I had to protect I mean, myself. The way the way uh, gays have been dealt with in our society, there's very few bigger changes in yeah. the past uh, eighty oh, yeah, years. Oh, yeah, yeah, very true. Very than true. that, I mean, you must have not been even in your in your twenties. You must not have been. Uh, uh, comfortable declaring that, or were you already? Well, with my friends and my mm-hmm. family, always. Um, but uh, I was doing the radio program in 1968, and uh, I never came out with it on that. But it wasn't part of, of the story. If it had become part of a story I was doing or mm-hmm. a discussion I was having, uh, I think I probably would have, uh, though in that day and age it was not that safe. Mm-hmm. to do it, because I, I I probably would have gotten fired right away by the radio station, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, but did you, would, did you experience much uh, persecution on that? Uh, coming out officially? No, no, before. Uh, no, not to any extent. No, no, I, it, I, I must say I never really suffered from it. That's, no. a, that's, a, that's a phenomenal answer, because there are so many people who have tried to hurt you in so many ways. Yeah. It seems like they would have used all the all the ammunition they could have gotten. Yeah, but they did, of course they also had to watch out for libel and everything because they didn't have any proof of it, mm-hmm. or they maybe couldn't find any proof. Of it. Mm-hmm. But the, the the way I came out on the internet like that in Swift, as a matter of fact, uh, it was matter of fact, it didn't give me a gram of a problem, not an iota. Let's put it that way <laughs> to be Greek. You see, uh, I mean, not not a not a bit, not a touch. Of problems with it. All I got was I, I maybe got two, uh, two things saying, uh, "Oh well, I should have guessed that too because you're such a terrible person and you're an atheist, etc." <laughs> but that I don't mind. Uh, you know, that, that's nothing. 
but I didn't get any other problems from it. Nobody came after me and, and chortled and laughed and, and scratched and whatnot. I've never seen any of that, uh, which rather surprised me. I thought there would be a certain amount of backlash from it, but not a bit of it. That's kind of wonderful. Of course, I'm, you know, aged, and maybe they're taking <laughs> it easy on the old guy. You, for a long time, for a very long time, uh, separated skepticism from atheism. Uh, you separated those things, and I know that I argued with you about it. I know that Dawkins argued with you about it. I know that a lot of people did. Do you still believe, I mean, we we do have, at in the skeptics organization, we do have religious people, oh, yeah. and we certainly do have atheists who are not skeptical. Oh, you yeah. have homeopathic atheists and yeah, 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 all yeah. sorts of stuff. Where do you draw that line, and how do you use those words, skeptic and atheist, to overlap or not overlap? Well, first of all, I have said many times in print and in person that the JREF, the James Randi Educational Foundation, is not an atheist organization, mm -hmm. and it is not. Mm -hmm. We certainly, if we were an atheist organization, I would insist that every employee uh, actually answer the question. Sure. You know, do you believe in a deity, yes or no? Uh, and I may get into all kinds of legal trouble uh, for that, but I would never ask that question. Because that's frankly none of my business, mm -hmm. and uh, you believe in the tooth fairy might be more yeah, exactly. <laughs> and such because I do, you see. <laughs> but uh, that's me. It's that fairy thing. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> oh yeah, I never thought of that. Yeah. Hey. You know, you, you know the uh, the uh, the joke that Bobby Slayton made, and uh, I think I told you this. Uh, when you did announce that you uh, that you were gay or came out of the closet, as it were, Bobby Slayton said, "He's no longer the amazing Randy. Now he's the fabulous Randy." <laughs> oh, I, yes, I do. Recall. Thank you. Yeah, I forgot. But uh, you were you were explaining the skepticism <laughs> and atheism thing. Yeah, no, I am. Um, see, I'm an atheist of the second kind, according to Webster's. Mm -hmm. Now, one edition of Webster's. It's not in the most recent edition, I must say. But some years ago, it, it fascinated me because they had two definitions of the word atheist. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, the first one said, oh, well, first of all, for atheism, uh, someone who denies the existence of a god. But for atheists, they came up with two. They said an atheist is a person who denies the existence of a deity, at first meaning. And the second one, uh, an atheist is a person who says they cannot find sufficient evidence mm -hmm. Uh, to uh, to uh, believe in a deity. That's the kind I am. Mm -hmm. Because I can't prove that there's no deity. No, no, of course you can't. Of course. But, you know, what I, always, what I always do is I think that atheism asks the question of do you believe? And yeah. if you don't have the evidence, you don't believe. I believe that, that belief is active. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same thing that the fundamentalists and the evangelicals believe. That, mm -hmm. that there, there's, an, there's an active act of believing. And when I ask you the question, do you believe in God, I'm not asking you, is there a God? Because that answer would be, I don't know. But do you believe in a God is a different thing. Because if you don't know, okay. then you don't actively believe. That's what I do. But for years, uh, you, uh, you, did, uh, you were always a little, I always found you, and maybe I'm completely wrong, I always found you publicly a little bit evasive on the atheist question and always trying to pull it back to skepticism. And I just wondered how you, uh, where you, 
you must have a definition of skepticism as opposed why it does not include God. Well, no, skepticism, part of skepticism is atheism. Mm-hmm. I think, because it's just one aspect of it, whether you believe in a deity, whether it's one that sits in the sky or under the earth or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, male or female or amorphous or, or whatever, um, uh, omnipotent or not, etc. Uh, but you, I think if you're a skeptic, you have to be skeptical of religion, because there is no evidence for the existence of a deity. There's lots of evidence, but it's all very bad. <laughs> the evidence isn't good, but there's so much of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There is an awful lot of it, and it's, it's, it's in story, it's in mythology, it's, and it's been around a hell of a long time as well, which makes it all the more insidious and dangerous and hard to handle. You know, the... Uh, uh uh, BJ, you know, our friend BJ, who's in the other room as we uh, Hi, BJ. do this, uh, gave me a definition. I don't know where he got it. Maybe it'll come over my my headset as I'm doing this. But the, the difference between the, a cult and a religion was if the leader was dead. It's a pretty good definition. Yeah, not bad at all, but... Uh... And I, I would say also a cult is just a religion that hasn't arrived there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean that's why uh, when when people attack Scientology, which yeah. you'll find religious people attacking Scientology all the time, as crazy as that stuff is, uh, it does not seem crazier than virgin births and no, no, ascending no, to no, heaven no. and so on. It's just been around longer. We've gotten uh, and talking a bushes bit. and a few things like that. Yeah, talking yeah. bushes. We always want the talking bushes. Yeah, yeah. You haven't <laughs> very, got a talking very, bush. You haven't got a religion. Very, <laughs> very important thing. So, you know, Randy, uh, a lot of people talk about um, the uh, solace and the pleasure yeah, yeah. they get from uh, from belief. Okay. And uh, here you are, uh, certainly through, can we say, the first quarter of your life? Certainly the At first least, quarter. Yes, yes. Yeah, okay. okay. Third, third <laughs> quarter. Well, let's not... Get carried okay. away. Now. Okay. No, uh, <laughs> and you've lived your life, uh, your entire life so far, as a skeptic and an atheist. Although, I'm going to tell you right now, if you had a conversion now, the money would roll in, Randy. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, would it roll in? You would be... It would be filthy money, however. <laughs> on, on the other hand, I'm, I'm accepting, you know. I... And just talk a little bit about... Uh, and I, you know, I, I, I've talked about this a lot. I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you, but um, have you felt any lack at all? There are so many people who say they wish they could believe, and have you ever felt you wish you could believe? No, never. I don't. I, I can't ever. Now, this is since I was a little kid. I'm talking about a little kid who was asking questions in Sunday school. How do you know that sort of thing? Which is not a question you ask in Sunday school. If you want to still be popular. In this Sunday school, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a different one. Uh, but it's, um, no, I, I never never had a, a moment. As a matter of fact, um, Andy Harder was sitting in my office with, uh, with me a couple of years ago and uh, going through some data, and it just suddenly struck me. And I, uh, I turned to uh, Andrew and I said, have you ever had a moment when you thought that it would be better to believe in a deity. And he looked a little puzzled. He said, no, I don't remember that I ever had. He said, have you ever had it? And I said, no, that's why I was, why I posed the question to you, because I can't remember a moment when I ever entertained the idea of this deity 
actually existed, or any deity for that matter. Yeah, you know, my mom, who uh, who came out as an atheist in her 80s, you know, was not an atheist yeah, yeah, in yeah. her 80s. Um, my mom used to say, even before that, that she wished she could believe because she saw comfort there. And one of the few things I disagreed with my mom on was I never saw that comfort that even atheists talk about. And I, I look up to you, you know, as I, uh, you know, uh, said over and over again as my, uh, as my uh, biggest role model. And I've never seen any sort of absence in your life whatsoever. I've never seen uh, something where I said, boy, I wish Randy uh, had something to, to hold on to there, because you do have something to hold on to. You have love, and you have friendship, oh, and yeah. you have art, and you have truth, and you have beauty. Yeah. And uh, I've never seen, and I just wanted to, I've never asked you if you ever felt that in your whole life, any sort of absence at all. Well, I must tell you that I did lie to my grandfather. You tell that story. I do know it, but I'd like you to tell it. My grandfather on my father's side was a lovely old gentleman. He died, I think it was 93. I, I'm torn between 93 and 94. He remarried at the age of 91. <laughs> yeah, that was the second wife <laughs> of his life. And he had known her for 60 years. The family had known her for 60 years. You don't rush into these things. <laughs> Very true. And she was a registered nurse, and she looked after him in his final years. With great joy, as a matter of fact, mm -hmm. because they were very, very close friends. And uh, <laughs> I don't know whether they carried on, and I don't want to get into it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but knowing Gramps, well, <laughs> in any case, uh, he was, he was I, I, I think I knew that he was on his deathbed uh, at that moment. And it was a matter of mm, two or maybe three months before he actually did uh, die and uh, notice I don't say pass away. No, dying is what he did. Mm -hmm. And um, he was uh, propped up in bed. He'd been reading a newspaper, and uh, I came into the room, and I, I he didn't know that I was even in, in Toronto, Canada, because that's where he, he ended up. Uh, and I went over and I embraced him, and we had some laughs, and. Uh, he looked at me rather seriously for a minute, and he said, Now tell me the truth. Do you think I'm going to see Janie again? That was his wife. She had died a few years, well, quite a number of years before that. And I lied to him. I looked at him straight in the eye, and I said, Gramps, knowing you, I think if anyone can do it, you will be with Janie when you pass. And it'll be a joyous time for you, and it'll be a joyous time for me knowing that you're you're with Janie. And he looked at me very penetratingly, <laughs> <laughs> and he he nodded very very gently, just a, a yes, sort of a nod, and then he broke out into a smile, and we went on with another con bit of conversation, <laughs> but. I know he didn't believe me. <laughs> I know he didn't. Uh, I said I should go to Sylvia Brown to find out whether or not he actually knew or not. But you know, uh, you didn't really lie to him. You just kind of said, "I love you," didn't you? Yeah. Oh yeah, that was it. I I thought to myself, wait a minute, it's any comfort to him? You know, Martin Gardner. Now Martin Gardner admitted to me and to the world quite some years ago. That he was a deist. Mm -hmm. And I remember on one telephone conversation, 
It was rather uneasy for me, and I said, Martin, I still don't understand why you can say that you're a deist. And he, he laughed on the other end of the phone. He said, Brad, he said, I don't have any good arguments for you. You have all the arguments on your side. I, I can't see any proof for the existence of a deity whatsoever. But I, I choose to accept that there is some sort of large force out there that, uh, that could have created us or certainly some, some causative factor, some, something big out there. And I choose to call it a deity. And I do that because it makes me feel more comfortable. That's all I needed from Martin. Mm-hmm. If it's going to make a good friend of mine like Martin Gardner feel more comfortable, I'm all for it. <laughs> I would I would lie to, to, until my teeth fell out if it made Martin Gardner feel more comfortable. I didn't lie to him, no, but that's what he explained to me, and I had to respect that because there's hardly anybody I respected as much as Martin Gardner. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, as uh, as I always say, you know, when people talk about atheism and coming out to their families and so on. I always say that, uh, uh, you know, if you read the New Testament, Jesus says that uh, belief in God is more important than your family and the people that you love. And one of the big differences that atheists have is that the people you love and the friendship in your family is is more important than atheism. Oh, absolutely. And uh, when all is said and done, I'll just stand Randy by saying, boy, I love you, man. <laughs> that was Ben's Sunday School. Playing this later when I'm busy in New York City, so I don't know what's coming up next week. But you got to hear me talk to, uh, well, the most important living person in my life. You know, that's not part of my family. Amazing, Randy. <laughs> Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.